Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of future fuels, trends, issues, and developments. I'm your host, Tammy Klein, Principal of Future Fuel Strategies. And with me today is Nicholas Picard, who is the Director of Marketing for Ballard Power Systems. Nicholas, welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you very much. Uh, Hello, Tammy. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. How about you? Doing very well. Thank you very much for uh, spending a bit of time with me today. Thank you for coming on the show. Are you ready to talk hydrogen? Absolutely. Anytime. (laughs) Okay. So first of all, just for the listeners who may not be familiar, can you tell us about Ballard Power Systems and what it does? And can you specifically talk about Ballard's role in the transport sector? Yes. So Ballard actually started uh, 40 years ago. So this year is an important year for us. We celebrated our 40th anniversary. The company started as a uh, technology development company around batteries, but very rapidly uh, by the mid-80s, the company specialized on developing fuel cell technology. And more specifically, one of the fuel cell technology, which is called proton exchange membrane, and which is very much applicable for mobility. So for the past 30 plus years, the company has been really developing, perfecting fuel cell technology for mobility. That has been really, as of today, our main focus and took the technology from really its infancy to today, uh, a pre-commercial area. And what I meant by uh, fuel cell uh, mobility is really to develop this power generator, which make electricity which will then deliver electricity to the uh, electric powertrain on a vehicle. And at Ballard, we really focus on all the application of mobility, but with a bit more focus on the heavy-duty mobility, which means bus, trucks, marine, and rail. And um, so that's what we have been doing. This is what the company is focusing on today in bringing technology to the market, improving the technology reducing the cost and the performance of the product so it can be used in a commercial application of um, electric vehicles. So what does Ballard see as the biggest opportunities for hydrogen in the transport sector in in the next 20 years? I mean, we have passenger cars, we have marine, we have heavy-duty trucking, um, and we have this huge movement toward, you know, decarbonization, I mean, total decarbonization. And we know that that's not necessarily going to happen alone with battery electrics. So where does hydrogen fin into the space and what do you see as the biggest opportunities? It's a great question. Fuel cells can have a lot of application on the paper, but we need to look at which application really delivers the most value. So first of all, I'm sure you, uh, your listener are, are familiar with it, but Fuel cell vehicles are electric vehicles. So they have the common part with the ele- battery electric vehicle, with the electric drivetrain. Uh, they do have some batteries, much smaller battery, but they do have batteries. And they, so it's a lot of commonality with a battery electric vehicle. But the value of a fuel cell is whether than charging your vehicle at a plugging or a fast charger, you actually generate power on board of the vehicle in order to bring electricity directly to electric drive and to recharge your battery. And rather than storing the energy in a form of a very heavy battery, you store your energy as hydrogen gas. So that's the main difference. So now knowing that, then you look at what value 
can you bring by having uh, this very large amount of energy on a lightweight stored on a vehicle and having that energy being produced as you need. And this is really going to the vehicle, which are a lot on the road. So we call them, you know, heavy duty vehicle, not only for, because of the weight of the vehicle, but because of the way they are used. So if you think about a, a truck or a bus, a transit bus, they are on the road much more often and uh, for longer period of time and covering longer distances than most of the passenger cars. So uh, having um, those vehicles, which most of the time are heavier, so they need more energy to move, vehicles which are operating long hours, covering very long distances, therefore, they need a lot of energy. And using hydrogen as a very dense energy source and a fuel cell as a generator of electricity as needed by the vehicle is very beneficial for the what you call this group of vehicles like buses and trucks and rail and marine where you need a lot of energy because and, and that's really where fuel cell deliver today the best uh, value proposition and and this is you know driven by the uh, operation requirement of those vehicles so fuel cell will help the vehicle to have an extended range so can operate, for example, some fuel cell buses have proven to um, operate on one refill of hydrogen for 350 miles. There's no compromise on payload because hydrogen is very light compared to batteries. If you want to do a, a, a battery bus or battery truck, you need to put a lot of a batter, uh, batteries, a lot of weight on the vehicle in order to accommodate the uh, operational requirement. But that comes as a compromise with the uh, the payload, passengers, or goods that you're transporting in a vehicle. So that, that's one of the issues on those vehicles. Secondly, the refueling time is, is very key. Whenever you have a, a battery vehicle, especially a large battery vehicle, it takes several hours to refill, uh, to recharge this battery, where hydrogen takes only five to 10 minutes to, uh, to refuel. So if you think about the asset utilization, if you use a bus on a truck, which needs to be on the road as much as possible because you want to do two shifts or three shifts, then hydrogen provides a really big advantage in terms of that uh, utilization and a very quick refilling. And lastly, is all about the scalability. If you look at a you know, very large fleet of vehicles like bus and trucks coming back to a single depot where they need to be refueled within a short amount of time, within a limited space, hydrogen provides that scalability, uh, very compact. You have one refueling infrastructure, like today uh, a petrol station, where a vehicle can come up, refill in 10 minutes, get parked, the next vehicle come up, refilled, and then whenever they need to be used, maybe in one or two hours later, they can go back on the road and they can go for 350 miles, 400 miles without any need of roadside or recharging during the duty cycle. So we really see that as a sweet spot for fuel cells, those type of vehicle, heavy duty vehicle operating on difficult, long duty cycles. This is where fuel cell will deliver the most value to the customer and to the, uh, to the vehicle operators. Do you see vehicle operators, policymakers, do you see them waking up to that fact? Because it seems to me, I mean, if we're looking to decarbonize, 
you know, they're really, they're really limited options on the heavy duty side. Yes, you have some, some bio-based fuels, you have biomethane, you know, one could argue, uh, there could, you know, there are supply issues, potential supply issues, potential sustainability issues, so on and so forth. So they're, they're limited, you know, you have methanol as a, as another potential option, but, but the options are pretty limited in terms of, decarbonizing heavy truck trucking. So are you all beginning to see more interest, you know, from fleets, from policymakers in different countries and sort of in- encouraging this? Absolutely. And so I think it's very clear. If you want to have a zero emission vehicle, there's only one option is electrification. You know, burning uh, biofuel is great. You reduce a lot of carbon. So you, you achieve the decarbonization uh, part of it, but you do not address the pollution effect the, you still have uh, creating NOx and, and sometimes SOx, so you still have you do not addressing that part. So zero emission has to be electric. Now it's a matter of how do you bring the electron to your motor. So you can store the energy as a battery, or you can store energy as hydrogen. And so it's just a matter. I think the choice is not too much on the the type of vehicle because they're all electric vehicle, but it's a choice of what is the best fuel. And how are they going to bring that electricity to the vehicle in a way which will not compromise the operation of the uh, of that vehicle? And we believe for us and that hydrogen and fuel cell are actually uh, you know uh, very very important for that. And um, it's it's interesting to see that initially a lot of the you know bus and, and truck operators they went to battery because battery was available. Early. It, was, it seems to be the simple solution. But as you are scanning up, as the vehicle becomes heavier, then it's a challenge. The size of the battery, the weight of the battery in a vehicle is a real challenge. As we talked earlier about the, the compromise on the payload, but also you have to understand that a very large battery needs to be monitored. It will fluctuate in performance from a cold day to a hot day, which will affect a lot the, um, the performance of the, of, the, of the truck, the range its acceleration and the way you're going to behave on the road. So that's something which is a, a concern to the uh, to vehicle operator. But also, I think the scalability is starting to hit the, uh, the users. And I think in California, where today you have now a, a mandate called the ICT mandate, uh, the Innovative Clean uh, Transit mandate, which is going to force the um, transit agency to be buying only zero emission buses by 2029. So all the transit agency are looking at how are they going to achieve and meet that government mandate. So that means scaling up at a depot scale. It's always easy to have one or two vehicles, plug them in, and it's going to work. But whenever you look at having in a, one location, 50, 100, 200 vehicles, which needs to be recharged at the same time, the amount of electricity that you need to bring at one given location, the infrastructure it will take, the cost of that bringing megawatt of power to that location, and to be able to simultaneously recharge all those vehicles is a big challenge. To give an example, if you want to recharge 50 buses at the same time, it's the same amount of energy that the peak demand of the Trans-America Tower in San Francisco. So it's a lot of electricity needed at one location at a given time of the day. So those challenges 
are starting to hit the users. And then they're looking, well, is there a better way to electrify those heavy duty vehicles? And the, you know, the very um, important energy density per kilogram of hydrogen, the quick refilling, the scalability, all those items are really now starting to deliver, uh, to resonate, I will say, with the fleet users as a potential solution towards electrification of those larger vehicles. And in, in some of the vehicles, actually, if you go to the very big vehicle, like a marine, there's no other option. Battery is not an, is not an option. You're going to be packing you a vessel with batteries only. It's to take days to recharge. So there are applications where actually batteries are not even an option. And so, so I think that is starting to happen, and we start to see for us a growing demand from the fleet operators about using hydrogen on fuel cell because for them, this is the only way that they can still deliver on the mission, and there's no compromise on the, on the service they're doing today and the way they operate the vehicle. So I think one of the things that's going to hinge on this is the further commercialization of renewable-based hydrants. So two questions here. When do you see that transition beginning to really happen, you know, where we move uh, toward renewable hydrogen? When do you see that taking place? When do you see costs really beginning to fall? I mean, I've seen some estimates recently from Bloomberg that we could be seeing, you know, really the costs are dropping now and that we could see, you know, very cost-effective competitive pricing here as, you know, the cost of electrolyzers and such drop, I mean, in, you know, the, the next 10 years. So it's kind of, when do you see this happening and where do you see this happening for renewable hydrogen? It's a great question because at the end of the day, decision will be made by the vehicle operators on a TCO base. At the end of the day, the total cost of ownership is very important. Regulation can shift usage and put pressure on getting cleaner vehicle. But at the end of the day, uh, make sure that whatever technology is used, it needs to have an attractive total cost of ownership. And the fuel element of it is a very big part of it. If you look at the overall uh, TCO of a bus or a truck, the fuel depending on you know, the uh, operating hours, can be up to 30% of the entire cost of ownership of the vehicle during a period of 10 to 12 years. So cost of the fuel is absolutely key. So today, we'll say 80% of, or 80 to 90% of hydrogen come as a byproduct of uh, natural gas. So it's not green, it's uh, what we call brown hydrogen. So even though it meets the requirement to have a zero emission of the tailpipe, it doesn't provide the long-term sustainability of having true zero emission from wells to wheel. So decarbonization of the hydrogen source is very key. So there's two ways of doing that. One way is if you want to continue to use the, uh, I would say, the fossil fuel uh, source, like natural gas, carbon capture is critical. And there are a lot of advancements are being done in, the, in that side to create what we call blue hydrogen where you use natural gas, but you uh, uh, use the carbon dioxide either in some other part of the industrial process, or you re-inject the carbon dioxide into the natural gas well, so you don't emit any carbon, so you have what you call a blue hydrogen. That's one pass. The other pass is what you call green hydrogen, where you use actually renewable energy, wind, solar, hydro, 
and convert that using electrolyzer into a renewable hydrogen. And the advantage of that path is, especially as countries are scaling up the uh, power uh, you know, generation using renewable, in order to meet the demand, especially at the peak hours, you often have to oversize you, um, is the size of your wind farm or solar farm. And then during some period of the days or period of the, of, of, of the year, you have excess of renewable energy that normally you, you cannot use. It's uh, curtailed. It's um, very hard to sell. And actually, we have even seen in Texas on the part almost a negative price of that energy, a couple of cents per kilowatt hour. So very low-cost electricity, uh, renewable electricity is becoming available at the right time of the day. And so you can use that curtail electricity to convert the, the unused electricity into hydrogen gas using electrolyzer. By doing that, you have suddenly access to a very low cost path to renewable hydrogen. And, and we start to see in some part of the world where you have that excess of renewable energy. And uh, we have some example in the uh, in northern part of Europe around the North Sea, where a lot of wind energy is available, that it is possible today to produce and distribute hydrogen and meet already the parity with diesel. So you can have green hydrogen produce nearby a wind farm, for example. You can uh, negotiate a contract with a wind farm to get electricity during the off-peak period. You can make hydrogen at a very low cost, and you can distribute it within a radius of, let's say, one to 200 kilometers to the user can be a, a truck depot, a bus depot, a port where hydrogen can be used. And already today, reach priority with diesel. So if you compare in depth of a dollar per, per, uh, per kilometer or per mile, you, you can already reach that today with a bit of volume. And I think this is, a, this is a key word here is volume. In order to go down that path, in order to be able to offer to the uh, user, uh, the vehicle user, uh, a fuel, a green renewable hydrogen at a competitive price, you need to have volume. You need to be able to produce renewable hydrogen on a larger scale. If you do it at a very small scale, it's not cost effective. So scale is very critical. And this is why heavy duty comes in and, and play a very key role. As a comparison, to give you an, an idea, a car only might be using five kilogram of hydrogen, a fuel cell car like a Toyota Mirai. We only use, um, you know, to fill up a tank is five kilogram of gas. And, you know, if you use the car only a couple of hours per day, it might take a week or two weeks in order to go back to the station to refill your car. So not a very big demand where a bus, a transit bus will use 30 kilogram per day. So if you have a bus uh, de- uh, region with, um, let's say, uh, 100 bus, that's three ton of hydrogen every day, which is guaranteed because the bus will run every day, you know, for the, uh, and you know exactly how much you will consume. So heavy-duty vehicles generate a larger demand for fuel, and then because of that, it will justify investment into larger-scale production of renewable hydrogen. And we start to see that happening today, that we need those ve- large vehicle deployments in order to generate the demand on, on a hydrogen at a larger volume to drive down the cost. And when this is happening, and we have a couple of examples in Europe, you can get all included. So I, I mean the price of the production, distribution, dispensing of hydrogen, so the price of the pump to the user 
around five to six euros per kilogram in Europe, which is actually parity uh, with diesel uh, based on the on the local taxes and the cost of diesel in Europe. What I'm wondering is, I'll tell you what I've seen recently is I, I really am wondering about hydrogen because what I'm seeing is, you know, it's the versatility you know, its ability to decarbonize, you know, the uh, renewable uh, hydrogen, green hydrogen, you know, the cost, uh, you know, is forecast to come down over time and in a relatively short period of time. But it's also the vers- versatility that I think is going to end up becoming and being an, an attractive feature, not just the ability to decarbonize different aspects of the transport sector, especially hard to decarbonize sectors such as marine and heavy duty trucking, but the fact that you can use it, you know, power generation um, on the um, industrial side, heat, you know, all of these kinds of things, whereas battery electrics, you know, really can't take us (laughs) that far. I mean, you mentioned the analogy to if you filled a a ship with bat, I mean, that's all they'd be carrying is the batteries to operate the ship. And yes, batteries will improve over time and yes, they will, will be small. But what I'm wondering is part of what's going to drive this is, is that policymakers will wake up and see that, oh, we really need to, okay, we need to decarbonize. We need to reduce air pollution, but we also, you know, this is a huge investment and we want the biggest bang for our buck, which means the fuel or the energy source has to be versatile. Ah, I wonder if it's um, hydrogen. So. Just to give you um, an example, for the Chinese battery electric vehicle market, it cost China about 65 billion U.S. dollars to reach 5% market penetration for battery electrics. And I saw another figure recently from, I think it's like the European Hydrogen uh, Council, which I'm sure Ballard is part of. They put out a hydrogen roadmap and there was a figure in there that was really interesting. That, you know, sort of the basic structure, basic infrastructure, the basic movement toward hydrogen could be put into place for about 70 billion euros, which is roughly the same. And I'm looking at this and it's like, okay, apples, oranges, you know, in the sense of the currency, in the sense of the two regions and the demand and all these other things. But I do think it's very interesting to reach 5% for a small part of the passenger car sector versus taking that money and spending and getting a whole lot bang, a whole lot of bang for the buck in different aspects of the transport sector and and you get all of this as well. So I wondered what you thought about that and I also wondered what do you think needs to happen from the policy side to really, you know, sort of increase this transition on the hydrogen side for transport. I mean, and do you see the interest there on the policymaker side? So it's a really interesting figure that you just gave me. And, and, and I think that's uh, probably the very important when you look at the outlook and w- what the role hydrogen is going to play in, in the future and the tra- in, in the, uh, the energy transition. I think if we need to take a step back a little bit here, and if you look today at our, at our grid, and our grid was not built to uh, support all the electrification of the entire economic sectors, you know, from the industry to the transportation. And I don't think like scaling up the grid is the right solution. Uh, the grid, our, our electric grid is fragile. It's also vulnerable to uh, 
climate change. And it's a really good example is what is happening now in California, where PG&E had to shut down the grid because of the risk of wildfires. So I don't think the answer in the future, having the entire economy depending on the grid to decarbonize is the right solution. And this is where hydrogen comes in. Hydrogen actually is much more than a fuel or much more than a source of decarbonization for the industry. It is actually energy carrier, like the grid. So you can really have both systems, uh, distribution network of energy, one being electric through the grid, electricity, and one being hydrogen through a network separate from the grid. So you have more resilience on your energy distribution network. And actually, hydrogen can take, with time, will take over the role of natural gas network today. So today, we do have energy network on the form of natural gas with pipeline and distribution to all houses or industry. And we can really see that hydrogen can take over that role by having a bigger secondary distribution network of energy to work along with the grid because you can convert electricity to hydrogen and hydrogen back to electricity, back and forth. So they are totally, um, they can be totally uh, integrated together. Hydrogen can be a form of energy storage for electric grid, especially for renewable energy. So hydrogen will be a part of the grid backup and grid storage. So we can really, uh, in the future, develop that integrated zero emission uh, energy networks, you know, where we have electric grid and a hydrogen distribution network and storage network, which will serve as a part of our uh, path to decarbonization and energy transition. So this is why hydrogen is much more than just a fuel. Hydrogen can be that second, that second network of energy that we need to develop. And a lot of work has been done on starting to inject an increase, you know, a higher amount of hydrogen in, in an existing natural gas network and eventually replace natural gas with hydrogen in parts of Europe, in parts actually in California, in Texas. We do have today a hydrogen pipeline. So it's not a new technology. And I think it's what's very interesting, sometimes people forgot, is hydrogen is not a new technology. It exists for, it has been existing for, for tens of years. It distributed, it's produced, it's, people know how to handle it. So I think we do have there this path of transition. And when policymakers look at what the future is going to be, how we're going to decarbonize our economy, we really need to look at both our electricity on hydrogen and to end are going to accomplish that on which application works better for what, how hydrogen is going to complement the electric grid and how it is being used in the industry. And it can be used in heating to slowly replace natural gas and how it's going to be slowly integrated together. So policymakers going back to your question, need to start looking at what future energy distributions we want to build. And hydrogen has to be built, uh, part of that. All the studies are showing that we are never going to achieve our objectives in decarbonization and emission reduction with just the, the grid and whatever we are doing today. Hydrogen will have to be part of that. So mandate needs to be put in place in order to really make sure that uh, the investment is done in building up that hydrogen infrastructure, that distribution network, that production capacity. We need to be able to produce much more hydrogen, especially renewable hydrogen. So switching from you know, gray, brown hydrogen to blue and green hydrogen. So that needs to be mandated in policies from governments. 
there need to be incentives uh, in order to make that happen. Uh, incentive can be in the form of, you know, carbon tax, uh, you know, where you start to put a price of the carbon intensity on the fuel. That's on the fueling side, but it can be also fuel use for the industry, not only for transportation. So that's really a way of starting to waiting in 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 um in, in trying to uh, to stimulate the adoption of decarbonized energy carrier like hydrogen. So they need to be at a high level policies regulation in terms of you know. Uh, what cities are doing, and it's a very good example. I was uh, last week in London, and I was very happy to see in some of the uh, neighborhood you have now low, uh, sorry, ultra low emission zone. So if you don't have a very clean vehicle, you cannot enter the zone. But London is not the only city. A lot of uh, cities are doing those regulations. Where uh, in China, in Shanghai, for example, if you don't have a green license plate, you cannot enter some part of the city with a truck. So only zero emission electric or fuel cell electric vehicle can enter. So you need a mix of the regulation in order to force the transition to cleaner transportation or cleaner industry practices, as well as a framework to help that transition through putting you know, carbon taxes or cap on trade and other mechanisms that have been tried by different countries or incentives to uh, to help that uh, technology transition. So my last question is, do you see, I agree with you, first of all, and I also see this beginning to happen, you know, it's been happening for a long time in places like Japan and South Korea, but I could also see much more movement specifically targeted to hydrogen. My bets would be in China and in Europe and Perhaps Canada, depending, you know, depending on, you know, I think the politics matter. And I think in the U.S., it could be later, depending on the political situation, since the focus of the at the federal level really isn't on decarbonization right now. It's on deregulation. But I think ultimately that will change. So my bets are going to be in Europe and in China and in countries that already have you know, sort of strong programs, so Japan and South Korea. So I I can see the movement of that beginning where there are more, instead of like an alternative fuels infrastructure directive that, you know, includes hydrogen, there might be something that's more specific to hydrogen. I can see that signal, you know, coming down the pike because of the commitment to, again, decarbonization, you know, the versatility of of the fuel and, and combating air pollution. But my last question for you is, do you see We've talked a lot about marine, we've talked a lot about heavy-duty trucking, but do you see more focus on hydrogen? Do you, do you see policymakers, you know, maybe pulling away from battery electric vehicles, you know, and focusing more on hydrogen for the passenger car fleet, ultimately, because, you know, you have the infrastructure, the infrastructure is going to develop over time, you know, you, you know, the, the, you know, some of the limitations for battery electric vehicles you really don't have with hydrogen. So, yes, there's a complementarity effect, but, you know, as the price comes down, there's more, you know, wide availability, you see it more in fleets, the c- customer experience is uh, the same or virtually the same as filling up with petrol or diesel. Do you see more happening on the passenger car side as well? No, it's a very good question. Just, just a step back on your comments earlier on about the, uh, what we see at a bit more like a global uh, perspective. Uh, it's true, within the past 12 months, a lot of countries are starting to wake up and trying to integrate hydrogen in, in their thinking. We have seen 
in Australia, in Chile uh, last week, in Italy, uh, uh, Japan, Korea, Europe, California, if you take the example of North America, all those regions have started to develop policies but also yeah, starting with a strategy and roadmap, how hydrogen is going to be part of the energy transition. And it was not the case two years ago, but we have seen lately all at the government level, a really a much more effort being, um, being done in understanding the future role of hydrogen and how hydrogen and fuel cell are going to be part of that energy transition. So that's happening in all those regions. And, and I think, you know, every month we see probably a new country coming up with a strategy, a roadmap, integrating hydrogen into that uh, electrification or energy transition. So that, that a fact. And I think the country you highlighted are absolutely uh, focusing today on hydrogen is becoming a big part of their policies. This is interesting. As in the case of China, it's very interesting. So China has been at the forefront of the electric revolution. Um, you know, if you stay on the heavy duty segment, there is a pretty close to 400,000 electric buses, battery electric buses in operation in China, pretty representing 95% of all the electric buses in the world. So China has been really uh, ahead of the rest of the, of the planet there. But also because they are ahead of the rest, they're also starting to realize earlier some of the limitation. And I think they have really understood that it's not going to be possible to electrify 100% of transportation using batteries alone. And especially when it comes to heavy duty for bus, trucks, and marine. So that's why there have been some significant shifts into the policies in China, where they have now drastically reduced the amount of subsidies toward battery electric. And they have increase the focus and subsidies and policies to hydrogen and fuel cell. So we start to see massive investment in that technology in, in, in China, uh, growing deployment. There's still a learning curve. There's still a lot of work to be done. But China is now leading deployment of fuel cell vehicle on a heavy-duty side. I'll give you an example. Today, there's probably around 2,000, you know, between 2,000 or 2,500 buses and trucks, fuel cell buses and trucks on the road in China, more than anywhere else in the world. So, so China is clearly leading and, and is, is has been resulted by this change of policies on incentive. And we start to see other countries are, are, are doing the same thing. They're starting to realize that uh, we will need both technologies and an all battery approach might not be the uh, only solution. At the end of the day, it's going to be a mix of both. We're not saying that battery is better than fuel cell. First of all, most of, as I mentioned earlier, most of fuel cell vehicles are hybrid, a uh, small battery with a fuel cell, so you can get the, the, uh, the best of, of both technologies. When you look at the scalability, at, you know, when you want to do millions of vehicle deployment, the space it takes to recharge where, you know, hydrogen filling station where you share your uh, footprint of infrastructure among tens of hundreds of vehicles during the same day. Very attractive in terms of um, long-term planning for cities or, or vehicle operators. So that, that's one of the, uh, of the key arguments in, in the future. But there are also two very interesting arguments that we don't hear enough. Cost reduction. You know, batteries have been drastically going down on cost. But we're getting to a point of it's getting very hard to get it further. 70% of a battery is made of raw material, commodities, lithium, cobalt, manganese. And the price of those commodities actually will not go down as you 
try to get more of them, sometimes it's the opposite effect. The more demand, the price goes up. And there's very little manufacturing processes. Uh, yeah, 70% of the cost is the cost of the raw material. Where fuel cell is all manufacturing process. It's a lot of uh, pipes and control boards, and it's like an engine. So you you need uh, so the cost reduction potential is huge because the cost of raw material is very, very much smaller. Uh, we have a little bit of a um, uh, precious metal like platinum as a catalyst, but it's only um, very tiny. You have a, a few tens of milligram into a fuel cell car or trucks against kilograms of lithium and, and cobalt. And today, this is an existing supply chain. We do recycle, even at Ballard today, we recycle 97% of the platinum using our fuel cells. So we reuse the stack. At the end of the, of the life, the stack comes back to us. We dismantle the stack. We uh, wash the plates. We uh, recover the platinum from the membrane. As I mentioned, 97% or roughly is recovered. Value is given back to the customer. And we reassemble, refurbish, recondition the stack, and it goes back for a second life. So I think long-term sustainability, supply security of the raw material is going to be becoming more and more critical in the future. Fuel cell provide a very interesting path into probably a more sustainable source of uh, uh, you know of, of energy. The fact that you can really industrialize a product and uh, recycle it. Uh, much easier than battery. And then the potential of cost reduction is also very high. And if you look at the production from the DOE, uh, they foresee that the cost of a fuel cell engine can be comparable to the cost of a diesel engine, you know, just, just because of the manufacturing process. So I think this cost reduction pathway at scale, as well as a long-term sustainability of the technology and you know, on the uh, you know, how do you secure the uh, the raw material? I think is going to become more and more critical as the numbers of electric vehicle uh, is starting to increase, and government are going to look starting to look into that. Make sure that whenever you go to a path of electrification, it is sustainable. It is you know, from the material perspective, from the cost reduction perspective, as well as from the infrastructure perspective, space it takes, electric grid, so the entire pictures. And, and this is where things are going to uh, to start shifting. And this is where also we, we start to see really the growing value of hydrogen and fuel cell into to deliver the objective of decarbonization and uh, emission reduction. All right. That's the show. I want to thank Nicholas so much for being on the program today. It was really interesting to talk to you. And I hope as hydrogen uh, continues, you'll come back and tell us more about what's what's happening in that world. Thank you very much, Tammy. Thank you very much for having me. And it will be a pleasure to follow up uh, on that conversation with you. Absolutely. And I want to thank you all for listening to the show today. And if you're interested in following these issues, on a regular basis, feel free to sign up for my newsletter. It's online at futurefuelstrategies.com. Thanks again.